morning, borderline afternoon. Um, thank you, um, Salita, for that word and as well. Such a powerful statement. Nothing is catching God off guard. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, thank you, team, um, for not trying to recreate first service, but leaning into it, leaning into the spirit. I appreciate that. It's definitely um, a challenge for me as well. And so um, thank you for setting that standard. I do think it's fair to pray so I can be focused. So let's do that. Um, Father, yeah, I just pray. I, I mean, you know, you know I love you so much. You, you know I love you so much, God. You know where I'm at, God, but um, not my will, but your will be done. And, I, and now we, we've come to hear from you, not just in the singing of your word, but through the preaching of it. And so, God, I just pray that you would focus on me and remove first service from my mind and the, the gift and the beauty and the weight thereof and lock me into this moment right now for these people for this time to meet with you through your word. So, God, just please just bring alignment that we would continue in that space and spirit of worship to declare truth and then align to it that we've declared that all of creation is joining in the chorus of declaring your excellence. It's a, it's a wonderful sound. It is the design of all things that draw breath, particularly. We've, we've declared the powerful understanding that no matter what we face, as, as Salita articulated, God, it, it doesn't catch you off guard. In fact, you posture yourself as the refuge and we could find comfort and rest and security under your wings. This is Psalm 91. Lord God, would we align our lives as such, not just the words that come from our lips, but the actions we take with our lives. And if we believe that you are a great defender and that you are undefeated, infinity to O, would we walk with such a confidence and a courageous humility that just bleeds from our actions. And God, would you use your word to drive us to that place? And so fresh wind, fresh fire through Romans is what we ask for. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Meet me in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 15 is where we're gonna be, particularly if you could open your device, scroll there. Um, if you don't have either or, the, the words will be on the screen so that we can track through the text together. Uh, we want to start off our time by just acknowledging October as a Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And so if that is in your story, I mean, we just want to say that we see you. Like, so if that's, that's you, you currently have experienced that or you've lost somebody, then we see you. And, and the prayer is that the Lord would definitely bless you, eradicate all cancer in general in our, in our lifetime, but particularly um, a breast cancer as well. And so we just want to acknowledge, acknowledge and, and that. We're in the middle of a series, really at the beginning of a series. Tomorrow is a Monday, and the, the goal of this series is to explore themes or ideas that can draw us into greater spiritual vitality and flourishing. 
that last week what we, what we did is we, we locked into this soil that we wanted to create. We said we want the soil of every other sermon to just grow out of this simple yet powerful truth that we are loved by God in Christ. And so I just want to restate that. You are loved by God in Christ. All right? And we want that to be the soil for the rest of these calls to actions to flow out of, uh, calls to action that will, will help us connect the dots of the Christian faith to everyday life. Now, today and next week, we're going to be looking at this theme or this idea of biblical community. What does it look like to press into um, the pursuit and experience and embodiment of biblical community? Today, we're, we're focusing on it from the aspect of adulting. Like, so experiencing and embodying uh, biblical community as an adult, like a whole adult human, and all of the challenges and opportunities that presents. Now, when we think about the challenges of life as an adult, I think our mind immediately goes towards busyness. And that's fair. I do want to cut us off a bit, though, to not just stay towards busyness. The reason being is there's truth there. But busyness isn't the only thing that hinders us from experiencing meaningful community. All right? And so I'm going to get there towards the end. But let me just go ahead and say, some of us are busy, and that's understandable. You have children who take up all of your life in Jesus' name. The birthday party yesterday, I was like, oh, man, this is going to keep happening until you get 18. So you have children Right? You have a 9 to 5, and it may not be flexible, which means if you have a 9 to 5, really you have a 6 to 8 because you got to wake up, and then you got to debrief, decompress from your job. And so really your whole day is consumed, and then you got to squeeze in Netflix or maybe HBO Max. Shout out to the Titans on Thursdays. And so busyness is a real thing, but some of us are busy by choice. Some of us are busy by choice. And we choose it because of fear. We choose it because there's this association of importance that is often attached to busyness. And I just want to cut us off and say, busyness is a challenge, but it isn't the greatest one. There's really, to me, another tension that I I feel like the scriptures invite us to see as it relates to being an adult and interacting with life, particularly Christianity. Jesus' words to everybody are this, receive me as a children, receive me as a child, receive me as children. And the implications of that is they're just, they're far reaching that we would have a posture of humility and dependence and a willingness to be wild. All of which seem to disappear when we become adults. That dependence is now a sign of immaturity. And so what replaces dependence is arrogance and rugged individualism. And despair consumes a willingness to be wondered because we have enough years under our belt so we know what's coming. And unfortunately, Dead Poet Society, you know I love it, Robin Williams, the whole nine, and he quotes Henry David Thoreau, that most men live lives of quiet desperation and then go to the grave with a song still in their heart. There's a way despair just clouds the human experience. And honestly, more than busyness, there's issues in our hearts 
as well as our habits that keep us from experiencing meaningful biblical community. And today, today the hope is that God through his word would inspire some of us and then call all of us to action. That there would be a level of inspiration with what God actually wants for everyone. What he wants everyone to experience and then embody and that we would take the requisite action to pursue it. And that we would be freed from an idea or the prison of believing that what is causing me to not experience what God would have for me is external circumstance and not the person that is staring back at me in the mirror. That some of us, we really need to see that the issue is us, not what's going on around us. You track it with me? And so I want freedom, I want life, I want inspiration, and I want the discovery and deepening of meaningful relationships, Proverbs 17, 7 like. And to get to that space, Romans 15 is our friend. Romans 15, it paints this picture of what God wants all people everywhere to embody and experience. And it gives us some practices to actually get it. So we'll read it straight through and then we'll take it bit by bit. Um, yeah, let's do it. Um, Romans 15, one reads like this. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and to not please ourselves. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now just just pause with me. This neighbor isn't general person that you may live next door to. This neighbor specifically is Christian neighbor. The focus is community. Please your Christian neighbor, your brother, your sister. Verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. On the contrary, as it was written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For whatever was written in the past for was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus so that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. For I say that Christ became a servant of the circumcised on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises to the fathers and so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing praise to your name. Again, it says, rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. It's a lot here. This is, this is Paul laying out a potent picture of a welcoming community. Before we dive into the particulars, let me just go ahead and say this. It's worth repeating. Um, Think of it as confessions or charade. 
Romans, I was having a conversation with some friends, I realized Romans is like one of my least favorite books in the Bible, which is like a cuss word to those who are from the Reformed tradition. And then I realized it's because of the way I'm built. Now, who likes The Office? Yes, great, right? Who watched The Office first run? Not me. So, like, like I waited for the hype to die down, and then I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Michael Scott, you actually are pretty funny. Just because, like, all of the hype, that whole environment, it just kind of made me, like, just almost resisted a bit. And I just realized, man, I'm a resistor of, like, bandwagons. If it feels bandwagony, I'm just going to wait a bit, right? And in the Christian faith, it felt like 2003-ish, like the early 2000s to, like, 2011, 2012, there was like this bombardment to like get in Romans, like own Romans, you know? Let's, if, if you want to be a mature Christian, you need to memorize Romans, right? And if you, if you want to be like part of a gospel-centered, growing church, you need to preach to Romans for like seven years. And I was like, oh, this is... And I say that to say, we all, again, we bring baggage to the Bible, and if we are not aware of the baggage that we bring, we will miss out on the richness that the scriptures want to offer us. Romans is filled with power. There's so much here that is excellent. It is weighty. There's ideas upon ideas and implications that are significant to the Christian faith. But it was not written by a man sitting in an ivory tower somewhere where, like, how can I wax eloquent on theology. Rather, it was written on the front lines of mission by a man who is serious about the power of the gospel transforming lives and transforming the globe. And he is on mission to get to Rome where he believed that this would be the greatest pathway to expanding the good news of Jesus Christ. And even if I can't get to Rome, if I can't get there, I want to make sure they understand what they need in Christ. This book is actually powerful. And many scholars believe that the center of it is actually Romans 15. I fall in line with that. That the, that the, the pivot of this book, the, 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 the core of it is Romans 15, particularly verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. That this becomes a summation of the gospel, a summation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is a God, arms stretched wide, welcoming people into life. And then he calls others to do the same. Don't miss this. Don't file this into the envelope or the folder of, oh yeah, I already know this. There's weight here for all of us. There's marks of meaningful community that are worth looking at before we venture into what does it mean to build it. Before we can think about building it as an adult, we have to see what we're meant to experience and embody. Now, I'm going to run through all of them, and then we're going to backtrack, and we're going to take a few of them as the Spirit leads. The reason being, because, man, there's a lot here. And I feel it's necessary to at least just give us the descriptions, even if we're not going to go deep into every one of the descriptions. So bear with me as I run through all of them, and then we'll go bit by bit for where God may have us to land. Really excited, clearly. 
a welcoming community. These are the marks that Romans 15 particularly gives us regarding a picture of a welcoming community. A welcoming community is a community where people are considered thoughtfully and not just acknowledged generally. A welcoming community is a community where sacrifice and service are the norm, not an anomaly. A welcoming community is a community of solidarity. A welcoming community is a community shaped by God's ways and words through the scriptures. A welcoming community is a community marked by endurance and hope. A welcoming community is a community marked by uncommon unity and profound harmony. A welcoming community is a community marked by diversity. A welcoming community is a community that doesn't exist for itself. There's several more marks that can be seen in here implicitly and all throughout the scriptures, but those were the ones that just kept jumping out in my time with the Lord through this text that I was like, man, Lord, I feel like this is what you're saying to lay in front of us. So I want to put that in front of us. That is the marks of a welcoming community. If you, if you have the Bible app, all of that is there. Now let's take a few bit by bit before we pivot to the practices that construct it. Let's take the first. A welcoming community is a community where people are considered thoughtfully and not just acknowledged generally. This is uh, verse one, uh, the first part of it, 1A. It says this, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Do we see that? There is, there is this experience of consideration reflected practically. And it's orbiting around this idea of people who are strong bailing with those, quote unquote, who may be weak. But here's what I want to say, say to that. First, often I've seen, I've noticed that when we talk about strength in Christian circles, strength is typically defined or what is emphasized regarding strength is what people are able to experience based on their conscience. And so if you are strong, you're able to grab that bourbon, you're able to grab that Cabernet, you're able to grab that Merlot, and your conscience isn't burning. You're able to listen to that music and you don't feel some type of way. That is typically how we define strength, what we emphasize in the scriptures talking about strength. So you can eat what you want, you can listen to what you want, you can watch what you want, and you're free. Now I want to say, that's not inaccurate. That is not inaccurate. But it is inadequate and it is incomplete. And often, that is actually not what the scriptures are emphasizing regarding biblical strength. Rather, the emphasis is what we see here, that strength is defined chiefly not by what you're able to enjoy, but by what you're willing to lay down for the sake of another. That biblical strength is primarily defined by restraint and resisting for somebody else's good. So it's not I could indulge, it's I could give it away and I could give it up because you matter. Track it with me. And it's not merely willingness, 
It's practical accommodation. So friends of mine have been um, inserting new vocabulary into, into my lexicon. One of those has been this idea of ableism. And it's really good, just conversations and just even just rethinking past and even just think about how we operate in the present. And essentially, it's, it's just understanding that we operate in ways that actually don't consider people who may fall into the category of disabled. We actually don't really consider them as much as we think so, right? You go into a room, you go into an environment, and you can see who this environment is built for. But when you consider somebody, there's not just willingness, there's practical accommodation. And so ADHD is one of those disabilities that we're most comfortable with. We define it poorly, but we're actually most comfortable with it. But there's legitimate challenges with ADHD. It's not merely that you have issues of focus because you're, there's legitimate challenges. And, and the weight of this has been felt in, like, when you think about the education space, like I was in a therapy space, so I saw it, but in the education space, it's felt differently where you actually have IEPs, individualized education plans that take into account people's quote-unquote, disabilities. And so if you have ADHD, when it's test-taking time, there are certain accommodations that you're entitled to. And so one, you may be able to have an extended amount of time to take a test. Test takes an hour, they'll give you an hour and a half, maybe two. Additionally, you don't have to sit down when you take a test, you can stand up. Additionally, you may be able to have the questions of the test restated to you so that you can understand them. Do you see that? Practical accommodation, that is thoughtful consideration, okay? It's willingness and it's practical activity. Let me just say, every church everywhere can grow in this area. Humbly, humbly, the majority of church communities in America are not welcoming to all people. What we tend to do is we focus on a particular type of person. So if you're married or you have children or you're an extrovert, the church typically caters towards you and accommodates you and neglects others. And would that not be said of us? A mark of a welcoming community is a community where people are considered thoughtfully and not just acknowledged generally. Let's find another mark. Yeah, we'll go here. A mark of a welcoming community is a community where sacrifice and service are the norm and not an anomaly. Right? So this is the back half of, of, of verse 1, but then also verse 2. It says, each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself. Now, the insertion of Jesus as the model is profound. This is really typified in Philippians chapter 2. So Philippians chapter 2 mentioned it briefly last week. But Philippians chapter 2 is, is what is known as the kenosis, right? The emptying of Christ, the self-denial of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. And it's this way in which he lays down all that he's entitled to. He lays down certain privileges, he lays down certain rights, and he does it for others. He experiences inconvenience for the sake of other people, sacrifice and service. However, often 
we see that and we just marvel at it. And it's worth marveling after. That there is a God who would do that is marvel worthy. But the scriptures paint this picture of Jesus not merely so that our mouths and our jaws would hit the floor in awe, but that we would fill with a picture that we could go out and actually practice. And so you look at Philippians 2, and Philippians 2 is this powerful paradigm that's painted so that people could actually empty themselves for the sake of others. So you get to the end of Philippians 4, and you know what Paul says? Paul says, I entreat Euodia and Syndike to agree together in the Lord. There's these two people who are beefing. They got issues. They got drama. They don't look at each other. They look past each other when they're in this small little house church. And Paul is like, you can't do that. I entreat them to agree together in the Lord. Agree together in the Lord, what does that mean? Well, it looks like Philippians 2. Well, how do you get there? You empty yourself. This insertion of Jesus as a model means that this is the baseline of all Christianity. This is not reserved for those super Christians over there. This is not reserved for those new believers who are still on fire and real life hasn't hit them yet. This is for all Christians everywhere. The baseline is sacrifice and service. It is a norm, not an anomaly. There's more marks. Yeah, let's go ahead. Um, Solidarity. A welcoming community is a community of solidarity. Notice what he says. On the contrary, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Solidarity is this idea of standing together on what brings us together. It's identification. It's identification. Check this. He says, the insults that have fallen on you have fallen on me. Jesus speaks like this in Acts 9. So in Acts 9, Jesus is intersecting a terrorist by the name of Saul who is on his way to go kill Christians. And he says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Jesus at this time has already been beaten, bruised, bloodied for the sins of the world, died so that everybody could be welcomed into the family of God, resurrected, and now is seated at the right hand of God, advocating and defending his people against the enemy. Yet his statement, you're persecuting me. He's not speaking metaphorically. What he's saying is the way that you are treating my family, my children, my brothers and sisters is a direct assault on me. That is identification. That is solidarity. That is a game changer. To be so committed and connected that you stand and identify with other people. That's a welcoming community. It's a community of solidarity. Let me pick one. Yeah, let me pick one more. Not two more. Go ahead. Verse five gives us another one. A welcoming community is a community marked by uncommon unity and profound harmony. Verse five, 
Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another according to Christ Jesus. Whereas solidarity focuses on or emphasizes identification, uncommon unity and profound harmony focuses on or emphasizes belonging. It's this sense of unique togetherness, not uniformity. That there's distinction that is brought together in unique, harmonious ways. Um, And so in my childhood, middle school, high school, I was part of this organization called AMO, American Music Memory or Memorization Organization. I love classical music, right? Which for some of y'all, like, you? Drake, how do you? My whole life has been typified by this intersection of ratchet and bougie. I can't help it, all right? Now, one of my favorite classical pieces is Ride of the Valkyries by Wagner. Who's familiar with that? Amen, amen. Feel that. You need to just own that you know what I'm talking about. I think we've all heard it. If you watch the Looney Tunes, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill, right? Elmer Fudd. And essentially, one of the things I love about classical music and I love about that piece is you have the various instruments coming together to create this beautiful symphony that is sonically pleasing and appealing. Man, I was, man, I was losing my mind back there, like with Never Lost. And you, you, you have Salitha coming in, you have Mao, you have Will, you have Diamond, and then you have Eddie on the, it's just this collision of this tenor, this alto, this soprano, and it's just here. And it's enriching and life-giving. That's harmony. That's harmony. And what he says is that the body of Christ, the community of God, the people of God should be like that, that type of symphony. Where you have different stories, you have different experiences, you have different preferences, you have different dislikes, all coming together around who Jesus is. Profound harmony. A welcoming community is a community marked by profound harmony and uncommon unity. Last one. A welcoming community is a community that doesn't exist for itself. It doesn't exist for itself. This is verse 6. So that, conclusion, so that, therefore, these are conclusions. In light of everything that I just said, here's the takeaway that you need to believe or the action that you need to carry out. So that you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one mind and one voice. Why do we have one mind and one voice as the people of God? So that God would be seen as true. Verse 7, to the glory of God. Verse 10 is bring it out songs which say, so, so that Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. That God is bringing together a welcoming community that the truthfulness of who God is, all of his beauty, all of his attributes, all of his claims, all of his actions, glory, would be seen and experienced. A welcoming community doesn't exist for itself. It's not so that Christians can come and pat themselves on the back. Look at how we're loving each other. Great job, guys. It's so that this powerful, this is is Matthew chapter 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, when looking at his disciples collectively, he says that you are a city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Light of the world. You, you realize at that time, there was no, like, electricity. So you're not just flicking on light switches, right? So there's no fear of running up my electricity and having me have this high bill, right? And so, 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 so light was, was really revolving around fire. And so there's this idea, whatever, the light of the world, he's like, you are a bonfire. You know what light does, fire does? It doesn't just showcase things. It doesn't just allow you to see what's not there. It doesn't just expose. It invites, if you are in a cold, cold environment, what do you want? Heat. And Jesus looks at his people, he says, the fire and warmth that just emanates from the love of God should so define you that it invites other people to experience that same love. A welcoming community does not exist for itself. All of these marks that define and describe a welcoming community is what God wants people to experience in deep, meaningful ways and to embody in deep, meaningful ways. And pastorally, here's here's a burden of mine before we pivot to practicals. I've been pastoring before the Brooks, but I've, I've just watched seasonally that there's a, there's a speed at which I've watched people settle for less than God's best. And community is just one of those areas where we just settle for less than what God would offer us. And so we hear what was just said through his word, and we're like, that's good. That sounds like utopia, but it definitely doesn't sound like my present experience, and it doesn't sound like something that I can actually experience this side of heaven. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to become very comfortable and very good with good enough. And so there's this survival, just experience as best as you can, and get. And I'm like, man, that's just not Christianity. And Miami has a way of just, like, just boosting this survival versus thriving ethic. I'm just like, yo, I'm just, we got here and the word was thirst for more. Lucy, why did you name it the brook? Because as, as a body was made for water, we were made for God. Thirst for him. To thirst for more than what's in front of us. And pastorally, I'm just like, yo, Let's not settle for good enough. Would we be dissatisfied with it? Even if that is scary. And I know in particular seasons, it's easy to just complain. But might I say, maybe it's better spent energy, not complaining, but constructing. So the time and energy we'd be complaining about what isn't is time and energy we could spend constructing what should. That's a pastoral challenge. The other pastoral challenge aligned with that is that we would be very aware of the ways in which we meet good desires poorly. And so in a desire for this type of experience, this type of welcoming, this type of community, we will bond ourselves with broken people who are super harmful for us. And we will pretend 
as if sin isn't sin anymore. And the entire book of Proverbs shows us what happens when we bond ourselves with sinfulness and pretend like it doesn't affect us. And I'm not saying be dismissive of people, not at all. Jesus, friend of sinners, that is us. But I am saying there's a different level of intimacy. And despair is encouraged by despair. And when disgruntled Christians get together, it is toxic. Churches have been started by disgruntled Christians, and then they harm people. Disgruntled Christian community where you could pick at all of the problems in a particular location or all the quote-unquote challenges within a particular scripture, that is not helpful. Please hear me, not as a authoritative, like, stop sitting type vibe. But y'all, like, man, like, I've just watched it happen for the last decade of my life. From my 20s into my 30s, I've just watched it happen. In different cities, at different spots, with different people. Great desires for meaningful community experienced horribly that lead to great harm. Press into this, though. This picture, God says you could have it. I want it for you. And the means to experience it is verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ also has welcomed you to the glory of God. This is why people say this is the, the, the summation of the gospel. Because he's saying that there, there's, a, there's a God who welcomes us. Do you know what it means when he says welcome? There's a God who makes room. To welcome is to make room. It is to see somebody or something as worthy, and so you adjust accordingly. You make room. But the way God welcomes us is he's not just fitting us into his schedule. He is welcoming us into his life rhythms. This is why 1 Thessalonians is super meaningful. 1 Thessalonians 2 says, we were so affectionate for you. We desired you so much so that we were ready not just to give you the gospel, not just to give you this message, but to give you our very lives. That we were welcoming you into our very lives. Make room means build space into your life for others. Now, that's a practice. Being an adult comes with some legitimate challenges to make room. Now, if we're going to make room well to experience and embody what we just seen, there's some things I think we need to befriend. Like, like Aladdin, you know, genie, never had a friend. Like, we need to just lean into friendship with certain ideas, certain perspectives and practices. I want to start here. We need to befriend margin and limitation. If you're an adult, you need to befriend margin and limitation. Margin says that I can, but I won't. I'm going to create boundary and space so I can maximize life. That's margin. And so I could probably go to the, to the cup, to the, to the edge, but I'm, I'm going to pull back a bit so that there's space and there's room. Some of us don't have margin for relationships in our life. And that's actually a choice. And it's margin that's not present, not just because of our schedule, but because of our mental. And so we are so focused 
on relationships with particular types of people, we miss out on the relationships that are right in front of us. It's high school all over again. Man, high school, cafeteria, wild. You give a pencil and you're... What's, what's that? Exactly. And it just, it changed the atmosphere. And whenever somebody was doing it, you just want to be a part of that. There, in high school, there's just this move towards people who look cool. And we do that with Christianity as adults. I want to vibe with that person over there. I want to vibe with that person over there. And it's like there's, there's this buffet of people that you are overlooking and overstepping. And there's no margin in your life because there's no margin in your heart to actually have community with people outside of your preference and comfort zone. Build margin, befriend margin and limitation. Next, that we would befriend. If we want want to experience and embody this as an adult, we would befriend trust over suspicion. Trust over suspicion. Trust over suspicion. Trust over suspicion says that I am willing to be wrong and be wronged for the benefit of something else, namely intimacy with you. And so so I am going to lead with the benefit of the doubt. That doesn't mean I'm going to be unwise. That doesn't mean I'm going to be, like, foolish. But it does mean that I am going to be fully aware of my tendencies to be suspicious. And the only way we can actually lean into trust over suspicion is if we first and foremost trust the Lord. This is Psalm 118.6. The Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? He's never lost a battle. And so if I, if I anchor my trust in God's capacity, that it frees me to be able to trust other people wisely. So I befriend trust over suspicion so I can build meaningful relationships. Last few. Befriend okayness with being misunderstood. Okayness is this weird intersection between acceptance, but like the courage to continue to push towards the ideal. Right, So you're like, I'm cool with things because I'm making progress towards something that is excellent, okayness. The friend okayness would be a misunderstood. Here's why that matters, particularly as adults. Because we often don't have margin and we do have past history and past experiences, the second we get into a relationship where we're misunderstood, it's easier to just move away. It's like, eh, this isn't worth it. And it's like, come on, guys. Like, we got to push past that. We are going to be misunderstood. And if we're okay with being misunderstood, we may find a meaningful relationship on the other side of it. Befriend okayness with solitude. Some of us are so uncomfortable being alone, it should terrify us. And maybe God is withholding meaningful relationships with other people to get you to be more comfortable by yourself. So that when you enter into a relationship, you are not looking primarily to have something filled by the other person or a community. Rather, you are stepping into the sacred space of relationship where it's mutual and there's mutual benefit and there's mutual love and there's mutual intimacy, not merely this one-sided interaction. People who are not okay with being alone 
they destroy other people regularly. Befriend okayness with being the initiator. This is where we land. It was on social. It, it happened. And maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've heard this. And maybe you actually believe this. But it was this post. It was like this, this phrase that just kept going everywhere. It was like, I, and it happened during COVID. We're still in COVID, but you know what I'm saying? It just at the start of it, it's like this phrase that got way popular. And it was, I found out who my real friends were when I stopped reaching out. Have you heard that before? Man, that's super catchy, super potent. It's great poetry. It's terrible theology. It is poetic. It is trash theology. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How did God welcome us? Did he wait for us to get it together before he approached us? No. He is the great initiator at all times. He's on the pursuit, enduring and going and chasing because of love. Instead of stepping back and saying, oh, you'll figure it out. Oh, that's what you really want to do? No, he's moving towards people. And I, under, I understand the paradigm and I understand the heart that wants to latch onto it. That's in my heart as well. I get it. But man, that is so dangerous. We have the privilege and the opportunity to actually be initiators. We need to befriend that. We need to be so comfortable initiating that when it doesn't happen to us, we're okay. Because the aim isn't self-satisfaction. The aim is something more glorious, a welcoming community that everybody could benefit from in the church and outside the church. So maybe some of us need to strengthen that initiation muscle because we've been very passive in that. And maybe some of us need to hope again and keep initiating and keep fighting and refuse to give in to a lie that says, because other people aren't doing it for me, they don't care. Tracking with me? Make room. That's welcoming. It's making room. Make room, guys. Make room. Because when we do, there's beauty to be experienced. And I know there's challenges that we walk through. But if the picture is what we saw, then the practice of making room is worth energy. Being expended, endurance, and grinding for the good of others, our Christian neighbor. No strangers in the family of God, guys. Only stories waiting to be connected. Will we make room for those? Let's pray. Father, breed life into those who are just tired and feel like they've given and they've given and they've given and they haven't experienced they haven't experienced the weight of their effort and they're just done. Breed life into them, oh God. Breed humility into all of us, oh God. Humility that is so 
profound. It is rooted in understanding the lengths that you went through to welcome us, that it flows into how we think about one another, how we talk to one another, and how we consider one another. God, I'm grateful for our church. I'm grateful for it. But God, I know that often there's an experience that feels like people are on the outside looking in, longing for community. God, would you just free us of artificial walls that keep people out? And would you allow us to have the humility again the humility to be content with community as you provide it. So bless us, oh God, in your name we pray, Jesus, amen.